have ADT here and one night we didn't shut the back door all the way and like a big wind gust blew it open and the alarm went off and I was like, you know, come with me, come with me. We'll go check it out. And they were just standing in the door, like standing in my bedroom in the doorway and they wouldn't leave the doorway. I'm like, you guys are the worst. Like, <laughs> like well, a delivery, a delivery guy comes to drop off our food and you're all over the place, like trying to get out the door and attack him. But like when I actually have a need for you, you won't leave the bedroom. Yeah. That's the whole purpose. We got a dog. Cause like when I was doing shift work, I wanted something that would wake Lauren up, you know, should she need to be waking up and, and yeah, now I just can't turn it off. Like I was thinking I could maybe train her to like, I'm home. You don't have to scream, but if I'm away, you need to bark and it's everything. Yeah. If, if, if any person breaks into my house and has like dog treats, it's over. Like my, <laughs> dog, my dog's useless. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Play fetch with yeah. my dog and she's totally entertained. <laughs> well this is exciting uh we are starting a new podcast today something that we've been talking about for a couple weeks now maybe a couple months mainly uh-huh. be much yeah mainly because similar to the way i have my other podcasts i was arguing with uh my co-host josh uh, at josh beard radio on twitter a lot and he's like we should just do this as a podcast and that's kind of the genesis of that and because i'm so argumentative online because i have nothing better to do uh you know besides raise a one-year-old and be a husband and you know go to work that sort of thing uh i was arguing with you on twitter a lot and and thought this would be a good podcast because we talk about a a wide range of things but it's more i hate the word adult because gaming can be adult all right it's a fine hobby it's fine hobby for adults (laughs) but uh we argue about politics we argue about the economy we argue about whatever and not not like like mean-spirited or anything like we have decent debate i think um and if you're wondering who my new co-host is this is thomas black he's at thomas black underscore 86 on twitter and uh we've known each other for few years now and we kind of have similar backgrounds even though we didn't know each other in the military um but go ahead and tell us a little about who you are yeah um yeah thomas black probably known jake for about eight years we knew each other in georgia then he moved to virginia then like a week later i moved to virginia um kind of had similar career trajectories uh he he did air force out of marine corps and then kind of just did the same thing for the most part ever since um but yeah you were you were intel in the marines correct yeah yeah i was intel in the marines yeah, and uh-huh. I was intel. I was intel in the Air Force. You weren't a linguist, though. You were like just like a sigint, signature, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't do any other language, so um, barely knows English. Barely knows English. It's Southern English. I speak <laughs> Southern English very well. Yeah, yeah. He went uh, to Florida schools. All right, so we're gonna cut him a little bit of slack on this. <laughs> You're gonna have to cut me a lot of slack. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah, we met uh, doing some work down in Georgia together. And then we both moved up to Virginia. Uh, how long were you in the Marines? Four years? Five years. Five we, years? Yeah. Yep. So you have to do five-year contracts for Intel in the Marine Corps. And uh, where did you go in the military? Did you go anywhere interesting? First yeah, first deployment. Uh, went a bunch of different places interesting. Um, then my last one, uh, Afghanistan, um, Musakela, for anybody who knows, you know, Afghanistan terrain. <laughs> um, 
uh, yeah, and I was stationed in uh, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. So, uh, you know, towards Wilmington, about it's about two hours east, two and a half hours east of like Raleigh, um, kind of that whole scene. So, real classy place. Every Marine <laughs> listening right now understands completely what I'm saying. Real classy. Yeah, I never had the pleasure, quote unquote, of visiting <laughs> a Marine base, uh, but every Marine I met was like shocked at how nice air force bases were. Oh, that's still the case. Like we flew in, like took, when we went to Afghanistan, uh, Manas, Kyrgyzstan, um, was an air force base and it was a uh, surf and turf. So steak and lobster. <laughs> and then we found out they're getting hazard duty pay and a minute danger pay. And it's just like, yeah, man, cool. we, I made mistakes in life. Clearly we do it right over there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so if you listen to the gaming podcast, this is going to be a similar setup. If you don't listen to the gaming podcast and you are interested in gaming, uh, definitely check it out. It's at OVO Gaming Show on Twitter. Uh, we're on iTunes, Spotify, same place you're going to find this one. If you're not into gaming, feel free to ignore it. Uh, we're not going to talk about gaming much on this podcast, if at all, because Thomas is a no, fun, a no fun zone kind of guy. So, remember how awesome. in 2004 was? Yeah, that's that probably the last time Thomas touched a video game controller. But this is going to be more uh, more politics, more economics, more state of the world type stuff. So even if you don't like gaming, please listen to the rest of the episode. Might still uh, catch your attention. Uh, the way we do our podcast, we're going to hit a couple news items of the week that we found interesting or funny. What we're watching, what we're listening to, what we're reading. And we'll have some sort of main topic, maybe two, depending on if it's we feel like they're shorter topics. And this week's main topic, we're going to talk about the Afghanistan pullout, mainly because we're both military vets. That's pretty big news, considering we've been doing it for 20 years. And both Thomas and I have both been to Afghanistan and supported the Operation Enduring Freedom there. So both of us have some personal experience there and uh, have a interesting and more unique view on the topic than I think the average person does. So first things first, news items of the week. Rudy Giuliani got his apartment raided. Uh, everybody seems to think that this was a long time coming, but the Trump Justice Department was kind of holding off on it. I believe it's linked to the Ukrainian stuff. So I don't know. I know that uh, a lot of the more conservative media outlets will kind of paint this as he's being uh, like persecuted for being Trump's lawyer, but he's also kind of just a shady dude in general. I don't know how you feel about it. <laughs> yeah. So I think my default uh, setting for most people in office on either side is whatever they're accused of. I probably could wrap my mind around believing it. Um, you know, so, so I could believe that, that Giuliani is shady and I can believe that everybody going after him is equally shady. Um, it's just a matter of, of, who has the means and the ability at the time to make life unfortunate for the other. So, yeah, there aren't, there aren't a whole lot of honest politicians and especially no honest politicians, lawyers. So, <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not super uh, into the whole persecution thing uh, or him being targeted, but we'll see how it goes. I thought it was funny. I don't know if you saw the interview with his neighbor, but she's become like some kind of viral star because of uh, 
her talk. It was like, you remember the guy that was like live tweeting the Osama bin Laden yeah. assassination? That's kind of how she is with the, she's like, yeah, I, my ex-husband called me and told me to look out my window and there were federal agents. And it was, she's, she was hilarious. 1000% she's going to be on SNL tonight. Like, like, so they're going to spoof her on SNL tonight. <laughs> oh, goodness. She's going to have more followers this week on Twitter than anybody else. I, I, yeah. I, if she doesn't have a Twitter account, she needs one. Stacked. Oh, yeah. This is her chance to be a star. For sure. Uh, so what have you, you've got a lot in our reading, watching, listening. I'll, I'll go first because mine will be quick. I've spent a week in Arizona, which is why we delayed this recording this podcast to go visit some family and friends. So I really didn't read or watch anything other than I watched a lot of diners, drive-ins and dives. Cause that was what was on the TV in the background the entire time for some reason. What'd you watch? What's it called? Diners, drive-ins and dives with Guy Fieri. I've never heard of that. Are you good? Uh, I mean, it's not like enlightening other than like, <laughs> You get to watch some restaurants make ridiculous food. Uh, but no, like, I, unfortunately, I didn't really read or watch anything um, informative this week. I, I mean, I, we're going we're gonna to use this space to talk about news articles that we read and stuff. And like we were talking about in the pre-show, there was one that me and Thomas both read and linked on Twitter if you follow us. Uh, but that's like an interesting main topic and I really don't want to get into it here uh, about, yeah. uh, about elections in general, but you've got some stuff that you've been reading. Why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, there's one book. It actually, uh, a book that was recommended to me is called the warmth of other sons by, uh, Isabel Wilkerson. Um, basically it's about this, this time period of about 30, 40 years, um, early 20th century where just a lot of African-Americans, uh, started leaving the South, um, just tired of Jim Crow move north, really just thinking, hey, we can inherit and experience the American dream. We moved north um, and found out that that basically racism and tough times aren't regional. Um, you know, so kind of just depicting that experience, depicting some of the challenges there um, pretty early into the book. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's not like a happy read, but it's been informative. Um, so... I don't know, reading that, um, recently started listening to a debate between Cato Institute and Heritage Foundation, libertarianism versus uh, conservative, conservatism, conservatism. So, <laughs> uh, so I don't know, that's been interesting. So I think, I think the libertarians make a point that I often make basically against the GOP, which is uh, philosophically, or at least principally, you're the same as Democrats. Like you still want to just kind of... Uh, a big government that moves society towards the direction you want, as opposed to really taking a principled stance on individual liberty and on every instance that pops up, how do we champion and empower individuals as opposed to dictating what we think to be morally right, ethically pure, you know, whatever. Um, so the drug debate was interesting. That, that, that was the last topic they discussed was drugs. So that was fun. And we probably should have said this at the top of the show, but what do you lean more? Are you more libertarian? Are you more conservative? I'm I'm more left leaning, but I definitely agree with a bunch of libertarian uh, principles. I think that's a lot of people our age. Like I think libertarian is a lot of a lot more popular with the younger ish generation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely lean left on stuff like social issues and that sort of thing. But what where do you put yourself on the spectrum? I don't know. Like, I mean, I kind of feel like 
like I don't have a home <laughs> in like a mainstream political you know climate, right? Um, you know, probably on most things, you know, more libertarian. I think that's a more prudent uh, principle that can more consistently be applied. Um, and society doesn't oscillate wildly between who's in charge. Um, if you kind of have that principle, I think it's just a less dangerous route to go. Um, but then you talk about things such as a lot of criminal justice reform, uh, probably more in line with, with at least what Democrats talk about um, in that sense. Um, you know, there's a handful of things where it would be conservative, but, but probably almost everything more libertarian um, when, it, when it's splicing between those two. So. And I think that, I mean, we're going to talk about a variety of topics eventually. Uh, it's hard to kind of like parse everything out because there's like, I could ask you these questions, but like each one could be an individual topic, right? Like we could talk about the war sure. on drugs or or so, uh, criminal justice reform like that. Those are entire episodes. So I really oh, don't yeah. want to get into it too much. But uh, what what about libertarianism? I think I, I mean, you've said a little bit about it, but like what about libertarianism kind of draws you towards that ideology more than more than any of the other ones? Yeah, I mean, so I, I think one, I think that's what makes America more exceptional. It is is. Um, understanding justice as defined through individual liberty. Um, and you can go and do whatever you want so long as you don't encourage on somebody else's, is, you know, life, liberty, property, things of that nature. Um, and like I said, I think it's just a better principle to draw from. So, for instance, um, you know, I think a lot of democratic policies would look at the role of government is to promote the general welfare, right? But hopefully even, even Democrats who want to hold to that can say, okay, what if you get a President Trump in office? Um, what precedent have you set when somebody that you think is potentially dangerous or outrageous has that same authority? You know, um, what I think is if, if government is limited um, or if government just chooses rather to just prioritize individual freedom um, and protect individual freedom at all costs, you know, I say I think that's a more consistent way to approach governing people i think it's more just way to approach governing people um i i think i think trump absolutely explode exposed the huge flaw in the democrats like general way of thinking with giving like the way the democrats they want they want to have that government authority to fix all the wrongs in society yeah like it sounds great pie in the sky but then you get somebody like trump who comes along and you, and now he inherits that power. And for regardless of what your opinion on Trump or the way he governed was, there was a lot of stuff he did that was that you're everybody thought, wait, like, wait, he can't do that. And it was like, Oh no, it's just like, it's like decorum that these presidents don't wield this power, but we absolutely have deferred that power to them. And Trump wielded it. And I think, I think if, if you weren't, super into the limited government libertarian view before i think after trump you got to kind of wonder maybe this is not the right way to do it yeah like it was maybe, kind of funny, maybe, not good no go ahead no it's all you go for it well no it's yeah it's funny you mentioned that because i remember like probably about halfway through president trump's uh, presidency and i forget what the issue was but uh, trevor noah had a bit where he's like we need to be quiet before he realizes all the power he actually has um, and all the power he actually has is a result of decades of Congress really ceding power 
to expand the executive. Um, and if you look at it, there's a lot the executive branch can do as far as creating regulation um, and then deciding if you broke those regulations and then deciding what the punishment is for it. Um, so you just have judge, jury, executioner all in the executive because Congress has really just forfeited that power. And then when they have somebody they don't like running the executive branch, they're like, wait, this is not okay. And like I say, it's just, it's just a really bad thing to have a lot of power in one. And I think it's, it's breaks what the founders intent was. And I think there's a good intent in saying, let's have three equal branches and let's not make one too strong. So, yeah. And I think, I think that this is probably a whole nother topic, uh, but it's like human nature to appeal to authority, right? Like, we want one guy. There's there's a couple interesting YouTube videos I've watched that like the best type of governing system is benevol- benevolent dictatorship because you want somebody who is ethical and moral and will do the right thing, but they need the power to do so. And I think we all appeal to that. But like in reality, we've seen it throughout history that you might have one benevolent benevolent dictator or king or whatever who's doing the right thing as soon as he's gone his power shifts to somebody else and you can't guarantee that they're going to do the right thing anymore right we've seen that over and over again throughout history which is why we moved away from that system sure and i guess i would disagree that we all kind of appeal to that um but before for that same purpose like if you think about just you know the precedent set and what if somebody else has these you know follows these same principles but maybe doesn't apply them well you know, and I think that's why you look throughout history, for instance, um, like a lot of what JFK did, especially on civil rights, was good. Um, but the problem is, what if somebody who isn't good or isn't wise has that same authority? You yeah, know? And I, I didn't I didn't necessarily mean like us now or I just mean humans in general, like as oh, an animal. Yeah. Like animal, the animal kingdom, mammals and stuff and groups like this have an alpha. They have the leader. I think that's just innate in us. That's like, I, I think that the reason why America succeeded was because that we broke away from that. We like, there's a, there's a way better form of governing than, than yeah. having the one leader. But that being said, like, I think our, our like base instinct is to a- appeal to that one leader, which is kind of how we've got in the mess we're in right now. Right. Like that's why Congress has ceded so much power because it's way easier to have one person giving you the messaging like Trump or Biden or Obama uh, than it is like, you know, three, 240 congressmen or whatever. Like it, it's, you can't have a unified message in that situation. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, our, we could go on and on about how messed up our, our current system is and how it's a, uh, a perversion of what it should be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but yeah. And, and, and yeah, yeah, say we, we could probably belabor that a lot, but I mean, kind of one, one good example, right. is like president Trump wanted to respond to, I think, 1619 project with a patriotic education. I'm like, at what point do we just admit both sides want to indoctrinate and nobody yeah. wants to have a humble approach to education. Um, and it's, and it's bad thing, like a lot of Republicans are like, yeah, great. President Trump is doing this. And it's like, time out. Like we, we yeah. this is not okay. Um, which wasn't particularly popular when I, when I said it, you know, um, in, in more conservative groups, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the, again, I think the, a lot of debate nowadays, we don't, we don't give the benefit of the doubt to the other side. Like I, my first reaction to, you know, the 1619 project and Patriot education, whatever you want to call it, like absolutely like, oh, they're just trying to indoctrinate me or our kids now. Right. Like, but it's like, no, they like both sides want to 
do the best for our kids. Like if we could start at that, at yeah. that point and then figure out like where we went wrong, we would get a lot further. Right. But like, that just doesn't happen out. It's way easier just to demonize both oh, yeah. on any, on, on any topic. It's just way easier to scream and shout about it. Um, and sure. that like the article, the article you posted on Twitter about the white lives matter, uh, wasn't a protest or demonstration, oh, or whatever it was. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and Huntington beach, like, again, you're, you're, you're just assuming the worst about the other side and you're going to just go scream and shout at whoever is there instead of like hearing them out and having an honest debate. Not that we need to be having honest debates with actual neo-Nazis and black supremacists and white supremacists and whatever other, whoever else thinks they're superior to anybody. But uh, like, I'm not saying that, but there there's a, all the rest of us are in the middle of that. Like there's, there's no, if I talk to you that way, like I, I'll automatically assume just because you're a white male and vote conservative. Like I can't just paint you as a neo-Nazi. We're never going to get anywhere. Yeah, you're absolutely. Well, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, I think some of the reason, you know, why I'm excited about doing this podcast is, is one, it's cheaper than therapy. Um, yes. And there's a lot that I want to complain about uh, with, with regards to political leadership and, and, and there's uh, only so much my wife can take. Right. So, and I exhaust a lot of that, like before lunch with, with my wife. So, um, but the second part is, yeah, we, we have to get back to, and I think most of Americans can do this. They just don't get pressed for doing it because that's not going to get ratings, but yes. we, we have to step away from the, let's say representative Maxine Waters slash representative, uh, Marjorie Taylor green way of approaching conversation. Yeah. Um, that's just, it's just dangerous for society. And, and honestly, we're better than that. I think the American people, you know, probably 320 million of them out of the 350 million in America are, are better than that. And hopefully, you know, we can start to redeem some of that and discuss ideas and listen, like you said, not assume the worst in somebody who sees something different or may have a different perspective on it. Yeah. I think it's, I think that's, that's probably a subconscious reason why I, I, I'm also doing the podcast, this sort of podcast with you. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. The 90% of the political conversations I have with, with conservatives or other people, military, very conservative. Uh, I've worked in a couple offices in Virginia now that are ex-military who are also very conservative. Uh, and like maybe one in 10, you'll get the, the person who uses libtard way too much. Uh, but the rest of the time it's like good, honest debate. And like, people are, people are passionate, but they also understand that like, it's, we're not enemies. This is not a civil war. It's just, we disagree on certain issues and it's not the end of the world. Yeah. And I think what's helpful too, I mean, it's just sort of for me, you know, I, I try to be just intellectually consistent, you know? Um, so if it's right in one situation and the principle is true, then it doesn't matter what the other situation is. The same guiding principles are going to help you be right in all number of situations. So if you who have a much different political perspective than I do can say, hey, I hear you, but what about here? It should cause me to either be able to give a, a consistent and good answer or give me a moment of pause and say, let me re- rework the principle. Let me rethink just the, the governing philosophy here and the shortfalls it may have in this relevant you know, situation. So... Well, with that being said, how do you feel about us pulling out of Afghanistan finally after 20 years? 
Yeah, I said <laughs> the short end is I'm, I'm in agreement. I mean, we got saved a couple of years ago um, when somebody had mentioned that, you know, within a few years, we'd have people serving in Afghanistan who weren't alive when 9-11 happened. Right. Um, which is pretty crazy um, when you think about it. But, uh, yeah, the short answer is I am in favor of it. I think there are a number of things that a number of principles that America needs to consider before getting involved uh, militarily in a foreign country. Um, but before I get into that, what, what do you think? Yeah. So I, we, we had some discussions on what our first topic should be. And I think in the, in the spirit of starting things off, right, we picked a topic that we mostly agree on because they're going to be more divisive episodes in the future. Uh, and that might drive ratings just because people like divisiveness, but that's not really what we're setting out to do here. Right. We want to, we want to show that we can disagree and be civil or we can be on two different sides generally and come together on one issue both of us being military veterans and both of us having served in afghanistan and supporting oef in a variety of ways uh this just seemed like the most obvious first topic for us to talk about and timely uh i'm 100 for the pullout i've i never really not we we invaded afghanistan and i i mean i was in high school at the time you were in high school at the time that's how long ago this has been. Uh, and I was all I was all for it, right? Like they were harboring the guy who masterminded the you know biggest terrorist attack in on US soil. We got there and it was pretty clear after I don't a few months that he was gone, right? Mm-hmm. Osama bin Laden for people who aren't I don't know why you wouldn't understand who that was. Osama bin Laden was there. Absolutely. They trained there. They, you know, I, I, I'm not sure how much involvement the Taliban had, but they definitely harbored Osama bin Laden. They definitely let him run his camps there. We wanted them to basically arrest him and extradite him after 9-11, and they wouldn't. So we were going to go in and get him. One, I'm all for that. Yeah. It became clear pretty quickly that he bailed, probably to Pakistan, which is where he did bail to and I'm just talking about myself back then and what I what I what I remember of the situation. But so we stayed there and we dethroned the Taliban just for not agreeing with our uh warrant quote unquote warrant for Osama bin Laden. And then we were gonna rebuild the whole country for some reason. And it became clear really quickly that that was not gonna be a quick or easy undertaking. So it took 20 years Every American, this is the longest war in American history. This is nothing like Vietnam. You know, we're not, we're not losing this. This was never, we, we won immediately. Like the war was the, the war quote unquote was over immediately. We, we came in and we overthrew the bad guys, but we rebuilding a country is, is not what we should be doing. Like, that's yeah. That's not, that's not really uh part of the war powers of Congress or, or what considering this wasn't really, an actual legal war uh, from the constitution standpoint Yep. that, uh, you know, we, we, we it, sh- it shouldn't have taken this long. I'm glad it's, I'm glad we're out. I know, I know that there are consequences and I think that they're going to be unfortunate. There's going to be some bad consequences of this, but there's nothing we can do. We can't stay there indefinitely, uh, but you have some really fine points and we can go over them. So 
Yeah, so, so here's what I wish. Um, yeah, here are the, the five principles I think um, would be applicable in any situation where we're trying to think about do we actually want to uh, get involved militarily? And just to be clear, um, and we'll nuance this later, but militarily meaning, you know, we're really putting the, the entire military might behind uh, a particular objective, right? So I'm not talking about, for instance, um, smaller missions like would go to like, you know, the JSOC or, uh, you know, the uh, three-letter agencies um, where they really lead the way. I'm talking about you're sending, you know, thousands and thousands of troops overseas um, on cyclic deployments to try to accomplish a military objective, right? Um, so the first thing, is this an existential threat to the U.S. or a way of life? You know, is, is this, for instance, let's go back to like World War II, where we have to engage or we're going to cease to be the United States of America? Um, that's a relevant question to ask. So yeah. did what did the Taliban slash Afghanistan represent an existential threat to the U.S. or our way of life to you? In my mind, no, not at the time. Now, I think obviously they, they would like to. Um, but, you know, their whole idea of, of, you know, raising the flag of the White House and then, you know, toppling the U.S. government, that was not a reality. Um, there, I, yeah, so I'm, we're obviously in agreement on this. Uh, but just to get my opinion on it, I mean, I think your first point is a great one. I think that there's a lot of people who want to topple the U.S. government and overthrow our way of life. But do they have the means? Can they actually do it? Like North Korea threatens our lives on a daily basis, on a weekly. And they actually have WMDs and we're not going in there and overthrowing them. So it's a weird, we had a really weird, it was, I think it's because, because the Taliban didn't have any real means to attack us. And it was, it was quote unquote easy. I think that definitely played a part in in the invasion, right? Like it was going to, oh, we cool. knew that it was going to be, it was going to be an easy military victory. George Bush was going to get, you know, a notch on the belt and we were going to get Osama bin Laden and get out of there. Yeah. I, I think certainly the lack of an existential threat made us a little careless. And, and then I will say too, man, it's, it's, it's easy to Monday morning, Monday morning quarterback this. Sure. Really, and, and especially with foreign policy, like you have to understand that the president has, every president has more information than, you know, the common citizen, um, they're weighing a bunch of bad options. Yes. Like post 9-11, there's no good option. Right. Like only a bunch of bad options, right? So, and this is why I think it's, just, it's you have to have principles. You have to know, okay, here are the things I'm going to do. Um, here's how I'm going to consider foreign engagement. And if it doesn't align to these principles, then we're not going to war, basically. Um, because in the heat of the moment, like after 9-11, you're not going to find one American who's like, Hey, let's wait and pause and really think about this. You're mad. You're scared. Yeah. You're angry. You're, you know, your homeland was just attacked. Yeah. So, and anyway. I think that carried, not to get off topic already, uh, I think that carried over into the, the, we're, I'm going to use this, the, the term war, even though I think we both, we both I, agree that, yeah, we both agree that it wasn't a legal war uh, by, by the, what the Constitution lays out. But I think a lot of that feeling carried over into the war in Iraq. And that's why a lot of like when they criticize people who voted for the war in Iraq, it's like you got to understand that these people were like whether it, they were actively lied to or misled on on accident, which, you know, that could be debated. Yeah. But a lot of a lot of these people thought that like Saddam helped Osama, Saddam 
was planning to attack us or was close to attacking us. Saddam had all these WMDs, whatever, 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 whatever. But like the the retroactive, like oh, the, like it happens on the Democrat side all the time. Like oh, these guys voted for the war in Iraq. It's like yeah, I would have too at that point in time. Like you got to understand the 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 mentality and the sentiment of the U.S. at the time. At the time, like two thousand three. This is this is it was literally less than two years before nine eleven. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Context is definitely key um, to try to have this, but that that would be my thing. Um, yeah, it's an existential threat here, um, and, and to me, there wasn't. So, and, and, and from a principle standpoint, and then again, in hindsight, knowing what we know now, even from just a strategic and tactical standpoint, the way to accomplish the mission would have likely best been to use small force, quick, covert. Um, because what we kind of did was said, hey, in this beehive, there's a queen bee, and I want to find her. And to find her, we kicked the beehive. Yeah. And then until everything started to swarm, we were like, crap, where did it go? So, yeah, and, I, and again, yeah, exactly, the Monday morning quarterbacking. But I think, I, th- we, I mean, we did do that at first. We sent in the special forces to go find uh, Osama, and they were actually really close to getting him before he got away. They were. And, and then he got away, and I, I mean – we both worked in military intelligence. It's not, it's not something, there's no definitive information. We just, you know, we, there was a good chance he got away, but he definitely could have still been in Afghanistan in the, in the mountains. The Taliban could have still been hiding him. So at that point, yeah, we decided to kick the nest and see what shook out. And then from there, just kind of, we got into the quagmire. Yeah. So anyway, that's point one. I think second thing, you know, is there a clearly defined enemy and a clearly defined mission? So, and this is where you get the nation building. Like, nation building is an ambiguous mission. Yes. You have to clearly define it. You have to be able to clearly say, like, this is the enemy. I'm sorry. Terrorism is not an enemy. Terrorism is an ideology. It's a philosophy. It's a thought. Yeah. The war on on imaginary things has been uh, a a real downfall of uh, United States leadership. The war on drugs, the war on terrorism. War on poverty. What what is yeah what is what is winning look like? Is are, are you going to stop everybody from doing drugs? Like that's never going to happen. Are you going to stop terrorists from radicalizing? That's never going to happen. Like that's a very important point, and it's it's one we we still haven't learned uh, as a country. I feel like yeah. Well, and, you know, and, and so what you just said is it's it's actually kind of point four on my five point checklist of what we do uh, before we engage in military conflict, but. Are you going to stop terrorists from radicalizing? You know, I, I think the answer can be yes or no, right? Because so go back to like 1960s and President Kennedy's uh, foreign policy. He was a strong advocate for we need to not just focus on traditional allies. We need to focus on aligning ourselves with the developing nations because the future is going to be greatly influenced by who's, who's align, aligning themselves with, with developing nations. If the communists are the one leading that, then they're going to have stronger allies and they're going to have a lot more capability to influence the world and, and uh, achieve their ultimate worldview. But if we're the ones who are going into developing nations, I'm not talking not talking about nation building. I'm saying utilize trade, um, you know, utilize diplomatic relationships, because if we're helping developing nations and we're helping them on a path of self-sustainability, um, that's going to prevent a a situation that is is primed for radicalization. 
right? Yeah. Like if people have, and that's, that's the case in America. Like if you have a, if you have good job, if you have good education, uh, if you have something to lose, you're not going to throw it all away for, for the notion of terrorism. Right. Um, so, so again, that would kind of be more, more point four is, okay, have we tried to do everything diplomatically possible? Um, and, and part of that is, you know, I guess moving forward is, is, is recognizing, hey, we see what terrorism can do. So now let's be proactive in trying to b- bring friendship where the possibility for hostility exists and do yeah, it. And I don't, it doesn't say build bases, run exercises. I don't, I don't want to gloss over all your points here, but I feel like one through four, like all of that. I feel like if we would have caught Osama right at the beginning, like we probably wouldn't be still be in Afghanistan, right? Probably not. You would right? think like we, we, we get him right away and we get out. Like we're not staying there 20 years. Yeah. But it took us 10 years to get Osama. And at that point we, we were kind of, we were kind of in it. Right. Uh, yeah. So yeah, you can go over your point three. I'm sorry. I just, I, that's just like what hit me is like, absolutely. Like we definitely could have, we didn't have time to just put sanctions on the Taliban and, and, you know, starve them of resources so they would hand over osama like we wanted to get in and get out but once we were already in we were in and i think that's where it all fell apart yeah 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 you know so yeah so point two was you know uh, clearly defined mission clearly defined enemy um point three is there a way of achieving an indisputable end to the conflict and i think america has to get off of this idea that we can start the war and end the war unilaterally like general mattis was pretty clear like the enemy gets a vote in this we can't just say, all right, war is over. And the enemy says, watch, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, so when you get into something, you have to automatically be thinking, how does it end? How, how do we make sure that everybody in the world knows this is over? Here's the winner. Yeah. And specifically to that point, like anybody who poo poos the idea of negotiating with the Taliban, it's like, that's exactly what you just said. You have to, if you want to end things, they're the enemy. Uh, unless you kill every single one of them and make sure nobody else is going to carry on their ideology, which we just said was a fruitless endeavor. Yeah. Negotiating with the Taliban is literally the only way to end this war. Like how else do you expect to do it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there's, there's a common misconception about the Taliban too, you know, cause like the, the, the intelligence community would define terrorism. as okay. It's, it's when you're trying to export um, a philosophy or an ideology beyond your, your national boundary um, through any number of militant and criminal activity. Well, the Taliban, I mean, Al-Qaeda was doing that, you yes. know, but the Taliban was focused on Afghanistan. Um, they essentially wanted to be the governing body of Afghanistan. Um, and the, I mean, obviously, we got involved with them because they were harboring Al-Qaeda. But, um, and again, it's a relevant point to note that textbook definition of terrorism, Taliban doesn't meet that. So I'm totally okay with the U.S. foreign policy um, not negotiating with terrorists. And I think we're consistent with that if we sit down with the Taliban and negotiate because they're the governing body that we um, essentially, you know, went to war with. Yes. Yeah. As much as we don't like the way they govern or their political philosophy of, which is the case with everybody you go to war with. Right. Right. (laughs) That's exactly what I'm saying. Like they were the government there. They didn't even, even they couldn't, you know, align all the tribes and sectors of Afghanistan. And that was something we were trying to do. It's just like, it's just wild, but yeah, completely agree with you there. Yeah, um, yeah. Way of uh, achieving indisputable end of the conflict. Yeah, we can, we hit on this already. You know, what what have we done diplomatically to try to uh, 
resolve the tension without putting us in a strategic or tactical disadvantage. You know, traditionally, this would look like, um, you know, bringing nations together in an alliance, you know, uh, putting sanctions. I mean, we do this with Iran, right? Putting sanction on them, um, sanction on them, uh, you know, rallying international support. Um, and, and hopefully that works, right? Obviously, it doesn't always work. Um, and you can't continue to negotiate to the point where if conflict is inevitable, you're at a disadvantage. But you really have to make sure, hey, have we done everything possible before, you know, before we just have to go to war? Um, and then the last point, which you've hit on several times, and it's, it's very, very important. Has Congress declared war? I didn't mean, does the Senate take a vote and say we approve of the president declaring war? Yeah. Did Congress actually say the United States is at war? We have a very clear instruction on how we declare war in this country. And uh, we haven't done it since uh, the what the Korean War was that the last actual yeah, declaration of war? World War Two, Korea World War Two, yeah. Korea was basically you know it's not the the AUMF which is the authorization of use of military force uh, is basically what we've been using for the last forever years. Yeah, so, yeah, and they just kind of bend bend it to fall under anything like. It's by far one of the most uh, abused and misused things in the, in in the United States government today, uh, which is I think I think again, our generation grew up with this Patriot Act, the AUMF, and stuff, and I think that's why a lot of us have these libertarian thoughts now is because it's like this isn't how it's supposed to be done. Like we we have clear instructions on how we go to war, and we just don't use them anymore, and we let we let a handful of politicians just kind of do what they want. Yeah. Well, and really what I hope, ha what I hope happens, one of the good things I hope that comes out of this for America um, is that we have a Congress that's, that's comprised uh, in greater percentage, at least than it is now of combat veterans, people yeah. who understand the reality of war, people who understand uh, the mistakes made, the good things that were done, and can have real debate that is beyond just uh, what might save their job and beyond, you know, kind of this uh, philosophical idea of right and wrong and warfare and things like that. Um, because people who understand the nature of war hopefully will not be as quick or careless to get into it, such as, for instance, an ambassador, John Bolton, who's yeah. never served, didn't have family serving, and he is like, yeah, let's go to war with everybody. Well, yeah, it's easy for some people to say that. He's never seen a nail he didn't want to drone strike. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I completely agree with you. But and that joke kind of is a good segue. Is I think the I think the problem is it's going to get even easier to do these military actions when we employ more drones than ever before. Like that's the that's the way we're going. We're we're going away from the human capital cost of war into something where it's like our troops aren't even in danger now. So we're, we're going to wield this AUMF power way more. Like for instance, the stuff like we're doing a lot of stuff in Africa that has nothing to do with nine 11, the original nine 11 AUMF that's still falling under the AUMF. It's just, it's wild. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's something too, that, that, yeah, the, the technological advances are going to be something that I hope Congress can actually have, real discussion about and not act like a uh, 
tactic without consequence. Yes. And I think that's, that's probably a f- interesting topic for another episode of, of future of warfare, the way we see it. Uh, so I don't want to get too far into that, but yes, I think that uh, the Congress abdicating their power to the executive is going to be a reoccurring theme on almost every issue we talk about. I feel like, uh, but this specifically, like this is, this is supposed to be, this is supposed to be uh, what is right in Congress's wheelhouse. And they, the reason we're in these messes is because of them. And I don't understand why a governing body would so willfully and easily surrender it to essentially a single person. But yeah, I mean, I think Congress is like two main jobs, taxes and declaring war. Like those are the two you should <laughs> never. And it's like, they've basically abdicated both for the most part, but mostly the war thing is like, that's even more important. I feel like, what do you, what are you doing? Letting one person just kind of wield that authority. Yeah. So for the past 70 years, there's been a tradition of not declaring war. And now it seems like there's an annual tradition of not passing a budget. Yes. And they, yeah, it's like, <laughs> yeah, you have two jobs. What would you say you do here, Congress? Right. Right. And then, yeah, I don't, I don't understand. And I don't know. To some degree, I think the budget thing is a uh, sad commentary on our inability to speak as adults and compromise and recognize that we don't have one party rule for very good reason. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a mess, but that's a that's a conversation for that's a conversation for another day. So, so, so we kind of went over like what the requirements are for a quote unquote good war. I think we both are in agreement that Afghanistan and Iraq, but specifically for this conversation, are not do not fall under your principles of military engagement. But it is what it is. We're here almost twenty years later, trying to get out of Afghanistan. Uh, Biden announced that he's going to do it this year. And I believe he said by 9-11 or on 9-11. I don't know. I don't he know why not. he invoked. Yeah, yeah it, I started, don't... it started this week. I started to pull some people out because I think he said he said he wanted it started by like May 1st. Yes. But I think 75 troops have left. So like some pretty small number. but Some small amount. Yeah. <laughs> uh that was, that was, they're just all the air force like massage masseuses and uh you know the pedicure people you got to make sure they get out first uh yeah i i so i don't but whatever it was he invoked 911 in his announcement of it and i didn't i mean not not invoking nine like the actual 911 like he's like they gave the date of 911 of this year of basically i mean i don't want to call it a surrender or whatever but like we're pulling out we're giving up and it just doesn't, it, I didn't like the kind of imagery of doing it on or around 9-11. Like he should have said by like September 1st. Like, you, there, yeah. There, yeah, there's no reason to say 9-11. And that was really my only uh, beef with what, what he did. But again, he, he's pulling out. Trump said he was going to pull out. Obama said he was going to pull out. I'm not giving this all the credit to Biden because this is, Trump pulled out a bunch of troops. He tried to, he, he fought with his generals his secretary of defense is about it so i completely give trump credit for him going to bat for it biden allegedly is going to be the one to 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 do it like to finish it basically Mm -hmm. uh so you know we're like i said i think we're both in agreement all for it we probably might have some minor disagreements but what are your thoughts on the pullout yeah so so one i think guys i know i'm as we do more podcasts, everybody's going to know I'm not an apologist for President Trump. There's a lot of things. Um, 
in his personality and his character that uh, are reprehensible. Um, didn't vote for him in 2016. Not a, not a fan of him. But I think one of the good things he did is he was pretty consistent um, on the world stage of saying, hey, if this is what I said, this is what I'm going to do. And I bring that up simply because I, I hope there are conversations that President Biden's having um, with uh, international leaders. And I hope they, that the way he's having it, um, they're, they're able to trust him and believe him when he says these things cannot happen. And if they do, there can be consequences. So if I'm the president, um, you have to let Afghanistan's government know that um, if certain civil rights uh, that have been gained, particularly for women, um, are reversed. And if there's regressions there, um, we're not going to be the ones that continue to uh, hand out foreign aid and provide military support um, just so you can abuse half your citizens. Um, and and they, if he says it, they need to know he means it. And we need to be ready to basically honor whatever words we say. Um, because if you don't, then there's going to be you know, kind of further calling of the bluff. Um, so that would be the first thing I hope happens is, is that as Americans, because we prioritize individual liberty, um, we're not trying to be tyrannical or have a puppet government over there, but we're saying, hey, here's our worldview. Here's what we think is right and wrong. And if you're not on the same page, we're not going to prop you up financially. So that would be the first thing I hope they, they address. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody... We can do our best to ensure that the democratically elected government of Afghanistan uh, can hold Kabul. I don't I don't even when we're there, they don't really have control over the whole country. Right. So it's really hard to. To make blanket statements for all of Afghanistan, I mean, that's been one of the biggest issues for eternity in Afghanistan is that they're not some kind of United States of America. They're varying tribal areas and they're governed by their warlords or whoever is the shadow governor. Mm-hmm. And they, that that's it. Like there's no, we, the, the government, the central government has no authority over them for, for better or worse. So yeah, I think we have to have realistic, realistic expectations of what it looks like. Like we, 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 try to stop the fighting with the Taliban. And I, I agree with you. You set markers and checkpoints and check posts. And if they're not meeting those, then we need to, there needs to be consequences. And for the Taliban, I, I, I think that's where I get worried or uh, we'll go with worried that like, what are we going to do to the Taliban? If the Taliban just comes in, steamrolls the government and puts back in their, their, way of life like are we going to go back in and and do all this all over again no absolutely yeah that's a good point that's kind of my last thing uh regarding the pullouts we have to understand that there's likely going to be a vacuum i mean in all likelihood uh, the taliban is going to fill it iran might fill it pakistan might fill it um the russian like there's an endless number of possibilities we and we just have to understand that when you try to mason build and you have a shift in policy what's created is a vacuum there. Um, And and to your point, yeah, Afghanistan is definitely a confederacy. Um, I mean, it it is tribal. Um, A lot of of messy situations, um, a lot of situations that are completely foreign to probably just about everybody in the State Department as well, truth be told. 
But I think there's a difference between saying, hey, it's like you said, recognizing the reality, having realistic expectations, but also not providing billions of dollars in aid to, let's say, an Iran type situation where a woman can be stoned for being raped. Right. Like, so, so I think, I think you have to have realistic expectations that are appropriate for the context of that, that government and the way they view the world, knowing that it would be different than us. Um, also knowing that we're not the arbiters of morality for the entire world, but also yeah. just saying like, there, there are some things that we cannot tolerate. And at the end of the day, um, use your tax dollars to support Right. So that would be, I get, I hope they'd understand that. I hope we'd have very clear communication on that um, and mean what we say. So, yeah, I, th- I think that's, we don't want to get into another Syria red line situation, right? Like, oh, gosh. Yeah. If, if we say things, we have to mean it. That's, that was one of the biggest things with uh, Obama and Syria. Uh, that was a huge misstep, in my, my opinion. And so, Again, it has to be realistic. I I don't know whatever we negotiate with the Taliban, it like it just has to be very clear and we have to follow through. If we say that you you guys get a seat at the table and we'll treat you as a legitimate partner or whatever, you have to hold up your end. You can't run out, you can't, you know, bomb these wedding processions in the downtown Kabul. Like that stuff keeps going on. Yeah. We're 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 going to take action and we have to take action and i'm just i again i don't i don't want these red line situations if taliban comes in just steamrolls everything like uh, it's really easy to to say we're we're going to come in and mess you up again but are we going to have the appetite to actually do that after 20 years i'm i'm not so i'm not so sure yeah but and i would honestly say too though like what gives us how do i say this i think when you think about Again, getting involved militarily in uh, a foreign nation, you have to think about, is it justified and is it wise? Um, and to some degree, you cannot go around um, all over the world trying to right every wrong. Um, you know, I, I'm not, I mean, not to be silly, but like, you know, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton, like that second cabinet debate where, you know, and then his, his musical, he's like, if we try to fight in every revolution, where do we draw the line? What determines what's what's going to happen and what's not? So, there's a certain reality to we're pulling out. It's probably in the long run not going to go how we want it to go, um, and we can't. We we just have to be able to say like we're not going to go in and save the day. Do, do we do we keep a base there? Like, do we keep JBAD or Kabul Airfield or something, and we stay there? And I mean, not not, not like like. We have like five thousand forces there, right? But like an a, a air base like that is going to be much much smaller. Uh, I mean, is that the future? Do you, do you think we we keep a military force there like uh, that, like, like 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 other countries? How we have you know a base? Basically, like um, you know, the late Senator McCain talked about how nobody has a problem with us being in South Korea, so we keep a permanent base there for a hundred years. I think he was talking about Iraq, but same principle. Right. You know, I think we probably do because worldwide military infrastructure um, is to the Republicans what entitlement spending and like um, <laughs> is to the Democrats, right? I, I think there's a lot of, and I would be against it because it's not sustainable. You know, I mean, goodness, uh, Congressman Paul, you know, Ron Paul, 
he was saying this in the 70s and 80s about Russia. He's like, let them continue to build an empire around the world. It's not sustainable. Yeah. And I think we have to recognize the unsustainability of having billion dollar military infrastructures in how many dozen countries? Yeah. I think one of my one of my leading like I, I understand the strategic the strategic value of bases around the world and that sort of thing. One of my ideas that I've thought about a lot is if you don't want us in your country, we're going to leave. But a lot of these places like us there, right? Like, I think that the newer generation of Koreans don't like us in South Korea. But I think a lot of them would come to the realization real quick that if we pulled out, that there's not a whole lot stopping the North Koreans from steamrolling, right? Like, we could say we'll be back. We can say, well, oh, we're right here in Japan. Uh, but it would be very like Seoul. Seoul would fall very quickly. It's very, like if people don't know the geography of Korea, Seoul is within a stone's toss of the North Korean border, and they have all their missiles pointed directly at it. So, if you don't want us there, we'll be gone. But if you want us there, you're going to share the burden of paying for us to stay. Like, I, I think um, the whole like this military base is U.S. soil. That I, I think that's hard for a nation to want to contribute to if, if they don't get any say, right? Like, so I'm not saying that like they can come on base and inspect our stealth technology bombers, whatever. But like, you can have these hangers off limits and still have the local presence, right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm not explaining this well, but like, my thought is, if you don't want us there, we'll be gone. If you want us there, you're going to share some of this 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 burden because. It get we're we can't do infinite spending on on this worldwide force because I agree with you that like it's it's definitely no budget is too big for the DOD no budget is too big for health and human services right on both mm-hmm. sides so again we're we're at a point where our national debt is bonkers like it's it's skyrocketed in the last 10, 15 years. Uh, and, and it skyrockets every, like it skyrockets to new heights every sing, every single year. It's, every it's, president makes the preceding president looks like a fiscal conservative for the last yes. twenty five years. Yes, and yes. it's just and it's, kind of embarrassing, honestly. Like it's yeah, it's it, again. This is a whole other episode because I know we have six different topics from this episode we could we could dive into, but yeah. specifically to Afghanistan, having a base there, I, I think it's probably inevitable. I don't think the conservatives are going to. Uh, support this pullout if we don't leave some sort of base in Afghanistan. What, what, you know, if the, it's hard to say like, Oh, what if the Taliban attacks? Like it's one of those things where the Taliban is, can say, Hey, don't attack. But, but on the side, like these smaller, like, you know, indirect fire or whatever, like that's never going to stop. Right. Like even if, even if things go well and we get a negotiation with the Taliban, they're still going to fire mortar. Like we're just, you're still going to get the weird extreme, not the weird, but like the, the far end extremists who are still going to mortar a U.S. presence in Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, I think at that time, you know, like you're going to have the idea, uh, the indirect fire, you're going to have the small arms fire um, to some degree, just the less organized, more sporadic, commonly less effective kind of drive by, type of tax right right and like so like my worry is is we leave forces some force there some small force you know maybe a thousand people 
and you know one one person gets hit by indirect fire and it's like all in again like i don't i just don't want that to happen yeah and i think that's some of the risk you take if you do leave people there right but i mean i think if you just have for instance like your embassy presence there um yeah and then the security detail and the uh you know operational detail i think that risk is much more limited in nature than if you were to have you know um like a camp leatherneck um you know where there's a large presence there's a whole airfield there's um large logistical operations um that in all honesty are probably not as secure as they they ought to be um but but yeah i I think i mean just when you look at all of foreign policy and all that involves to getting even to like let's say trade packs i mean i think there are things we can do hopefully that would incentivize um that would incentivize the afghan government to recognize it is in their best interest to have us as a trade partner, to have us as a, a real ally, and to do their fair share in making sure that's not interrupted. And if it is, is serious enough to them to address it, um, to either take the lead in addressing it or to address it alongside us. So it's not yeah, just I mean, every time something happens, we're coming back in. I think like best case scenario is, you know, the Taliban gets a seat at the table. They work out their differences with the Afghan government and whatever. And there's no wide scale coordinated attacks anymore. Uh, and we can negotiate with them. Right. But I think that I don't want to say realistically, or I'm being a pessimist or whatever, but like if the Taliban just comes in and steamrolls, but holds up most of the, most of the bargain, right. Even though we don't agree with their, their political philosophies, what do we get? We, we got, we got to engage them, right? We got to not engage them militarily, engage them diplomatically and say, okay, you know, well, I, I don't know if we have the stomach as a, as a nation to peacefully and diplomatically like have trade, have trade negotiations, have like whatever we do with the normal government, right? Like sure. that's my worry is that like, whether they do it militarily or they legitimately get quote unquote legitimately, get elected to the government of Afghanistan. If the Taliban takes back over, I don't know if we have the stomach to like treat them as a normal government ever again, just be, be, because we've painted them as such this bad guy and enemy for so long. Yeah. You know, but, but that's kind of, you know, something else we have to do is um, the same way. I hope that we address the Afghan government and say, Hey, there are some things that we just expect. And if we don't, if, if those things are not uh, adhered to, like we talked about with women's rights, for instance, then we're not going to continue to financially support this government. We, we just can't. We don't see the world um, similarly enough to where we can continue to justify spending U.S. taxpayer dollars on this endeavor. I think the same conversation needs to have with every regional player, Taliban, Pakistan. Um, you know, at some point we, we have to let Iran know that if you go in and start, you know, stirring up trouble, and that becomes a a problem for us. Um, it's not going to be ignored. Again, not saying militarily, and the, but Iran being the exception because there's already a lot we're doing there as far as um, you know sanctions and trying to freeze them out. But for the Taliban, if they steamroll the Afghan government, um, I mean, honestly, you treat them like the, the Soviet Union, and, and we know that works because the Soviet Union was powerful, but they collapse when you basically isolate them from the rest of the world. Um, and, and leave them to be self-sustaining. 
Afghanistan's even worse off in their ability to be self-sustaining. So, you, I mean, I think that's how you force them to the table. Um, I, I, mean, I, think, I, I think Iran's always going to be a malign influence in that area, and I, they're definitely going to do their, you know, damnedest to seize some control of Afghanistan or have some kind of influence there. But Iran and, and the Taliban, historically, were not friends. Like no. They weren't helping each other it's mostly pakistan right like we need to get pakistan under control and pakistan really needs to be the ones that uh lead by example and i just have a whole lot of doubt that that will happen no i agree and i think that's where again because you're absolutely right pakistan is going to be the the uh greater concern of how they actually influence versus what they tell us they're doing right yeah um but again i I think you, you you speak to and you have to bring in allies to say listen these eight nations are going to remove foreign aid. We're going to move, remove, um, you know, trading agreements. If you, you know, go in here and try to stir up problems that are not in our best interest. Um, and I, again, at the end of the day, if you, if you do that, inevitably they change or they self-destruct. Um, you know, and I don't, I don't oversimplify it because the reality is they find allies somewhere because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So they probably right. go to a China. They probably go to a Russia and say, hey, we both hate America. Help us out, right? Right. Um, but I think we are better suited if we don't have a foreign policy that stresses us all over the world. Um, and we make our enemies, who I think have, uh, in, in some instances, less vibrant uh, economies, try to support imperialism. Right. Um so, but again, I think you have to ultimately, you know, say what you mean, mean what you say, and have very clear conversation with both Afghanistan and regional influences. Um, so, so on the, I don't want to make it a simple black and white, yes or no optimism or pe- pessimism, but do you think it's, do you think the odds are that we find a positive outcome? No. Uh, whatever. <laughs> You didn't even let me finish my question. I, I mean, I think I think it's very easy to be pessimistic about the situation, right? But I like I think that it's a non-zero chance that like this works out, like for for the greater good. I, I think that it's it's one of the lowest percent chances that it, we like we get everything we want and the Afghanistan people get everything they want. I think that's uh, probably a pipe dream, but. I think there is a way to thread the needle. I don't think that Biden or the next president uh, is going to successfully be able to do it. Uh, yeah. And, and that's why I say, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's impossible, but I just think that we don't understand the Afghan history. We don't understand the Afghan culture. We don't understand um, the worldview. And I don't think we can effectively speak to that in a way that encourages just outcomes um, and also doesn't commit us to forever being there or forever engaging. Um, you know, I think we have to recognize that at some point we've done the best we could to protect our nation and to do well by the Afghan people. But I mean, the, the reality is, um, and I think we are speaking in a significant position of privilege, but freedom is hard. And democracy is hard, yeah. um, and you have to tolerate a lot if you really want justice as defined by liberty. 
right? Right. Um, and, and that's just not how a lot of the world um, has historically lived or wanted to live. Yeah. Um, and I think from my experience and with my limited understanding of Afghanistan, um, that's not how a lot of uh, the tribal leaders and political influences want to live, that they don't, they don't want to have a worldview that says, I'll respect your beliefs. You respect mine. We'll leave each other alone. But if anybody attacks us, we're going to join together because an attack on one is an attack on all. That's just not. Yeah. It's, it's the same sort of thing with a lot of African nations and North Korea. It's like, why don't you just want your freedom, man? Go get your freedom. We did it. Yeah. Like, like it's just not, it's not that easy. And I, I think, I think, uh, it sucks to say it, right? Like, I, I think most Americans would want the best for Afghanistan, the citizens, right? Like, we want them to have every freedom and whatever we have, right? Like, that's that's the very altruistic feeling. I, I think that we have provided some of that over the last 20 years, but we can't stay there indefinitely. We're, we failed miserably at, at uniting the country under one one government who can provide that sort of, you know, the protections of those freedoms. And as soon as we leave that dream basically is going to end and there's no, there's, but there's nothing we can do about it. Right. And it sucks to say it. Like, I I don't want, I don't want the U S to, to ever be the reason why we like fail anybody. Right. We're all humans. We're all humanity. But like in the, in this situation, the realistic answer is we, we just leave. You got to wipe your hands of it and get out. Yeah. I, and I would agree with that with one caveat, um, you know, over 20 years, there are a lot of Afghans um, who have helped us tremendously. Yes. And, and I think we have, when we, before we pull out, we have to, we have to honor our, our friends there, the people who have risked their lives, just like the military members, um, and the people who have, who have supported our efforts and I think have really um, believed in and fought for freedom mm-hmm. um, because they're going to be the, the first ones that are quite honestly, I mean, at risk, right? And, and yeah. I will not be too, too graphic with that, but they're going to be the most at risk. And I think our embassy needs to be aware of who they are. They need to know how they can get a hold of us. And we need to have a good plan to um, get them to safety as quickly mm-hmm. as possible. And we need to be dedicated to that. Um, because that's just the just thing to do. That's the morally right thing to do. You cannot yeah. leave people hanging out in the dry that have yeah. their lives with you. Yeah, and I think both of us are intimately familiar with working with our interpreters and our yep. you know, third country nationals. Like we both, they were they absolutely were essential in getting the job done. Uh, they a lot of them lost their lives just as U.S. troops lost their lives. Like they were there, so. I, I, that's one of the things like, I, I understand the, like the hesitation of like, okay, we don't, we would have to bring them and their families and it's hard to vet all those people, but it's like, that should be, that should, that's a, that should be a fast track, right? Like we both worked in intelligence in the military. You don't get sources that are not connected to the Taliban or connected to Al Qaeda, right? Like the best sources are the ones that are in those organizations. So of course they have those ties to those people. Of course the the guy we knew in Kunar is tied to the tribal leader, but you just got to get over that. Like mm-hmm. the risk of them being a, a an enemy spy or, you know, a terrorist or whatever, the risk is not zero and we need to get over that. Like you got to bring these people over and we can monitor them. We can have them under 
whatever vetting and surveillance we need to, but those people need to be over here before we pull out. Like that should be priority one. Well, and I was about to say what I hope has happened um, is that there's been communication. Like, listen, if you want um, refugee status, you need to declare that now yeah. um, because once the pullout happens, I mean, we, we can do what we can say, Hey, here's the number to the embassy. You know, here's what we can try to do. But, um, understand that you can either come now or you can risk possibly not being able to get out quick enough. Yeah. And, and I say, but, but I do think, I mean, yeah, you, you just have to, you have to honor the people that were in, in, in there with you that were taking bio with you that were risking their lives with you. And, and honestly, they are a greater state because again, I mean, unless I died over there, I knew I had a date when I was planning to come home. Right. Well, they're home. They're home. <laughs> they're um, and, and people they grew up with and friends they may have had may not be friends anymore. Right. Um, and there's not this justice system they can appeal to. So exactly. Well, you got any more thoughts on the topic? Cause I think we covered, uh, most everything we have on here. No, I say, I, I hope it goes well. I pray it goes well. Um, not optimistic, but, but you know, at this point, all you can do is say, you know, we want to honor people who came out with us and then see what happens, I guess. And learn from the yeah, state. it'll it'll be interesting. Hopefully, we're uh, keep continuing to do this podcast in like a year or two. We can kind of come back to it and see where we're at and uh, see how it's going. Because I think uh, this will be something both you and I will keep an eye on for sure. Yep, for sure. Well, I hope uh, we kept you entertained for a little over an hour. Uh, we're planning on doing this about twice a month for now, and we'll see see what this uh, develops into if uh, we want to increase or decrease the number of uh times we can set aside to record this but i definitely have again i just having this one conversation sparked six other topics that we could have talked about so uh, there's not going to be a a a dearth of things for us to discuss but uh, i had a really good time at this hour flew by i hope you uh, felt the same yeah it's a good time hopefully everybody listening enjoys it yeah, so we'll be putting this out soon, and we're going to have our channel and our Discord dedicated to these kind of topics that we're talking about. So if you haven't, hit up our Discord. Uh, you can find the link to this Discord in, in the episode description. We hopefully have you listening on Spotify or iTunes. Uh, shouldn't be hard to find the Discord. But yeah, come join us. Come talk. Uh, again, we I have another gaming podcast with my, my buddy Josh called the 1v1 Gaming Podcast. This will be under the 1v1 uh, banner, but we'll be 1v1 Deep State. So if you're not into gaming, don't worry about that. You can focus only on listening to us blather on about Middle Eastern politics, at least for this episode. <laughs> uh, but once again, I'm Jake Lane. I'm at The Rake, but the A is a four on Twitter. My new podcasting partner is Thomas Black. He is at Thomas Black underscore 86 on Twitter. Uh, engage with us, send us some links, send us some. Tell us how you felt about the episode and your thoughts on our pullout in Afghanistan. And I hope you had a good time listening.